0: Shadows of a thousand years rise again unseen, voices whisper in the trees. Tonight is Halloween. Dexter Cozen. Hello everyone and welcome back to a new Misfit Diaries podcast episode. I am Rhiannon, your host, and I hope you're all having a jolly old time by the time you guys are hearing this recording it will probably be halloween so happy halloween everyone i hope you're all dressing up in super cool costumes and getting lots of candy trick-or-treating getting lots of scares going to scary things hanging out with your friends i myself personally have a midterm the next day so i'll probably be studying in all honesty in true nerdy fashion maybe i'll dress up as hermione granger Um, At the time of recording this, though, it is not Halloween, so I'm kind of just, like, hanging out at home right now, sitting on my couch. So, I thought in true fashion of, like, embracing the spooky season that is October and Halloween, that today's podcast episode, we would cover some, like, really scary, like, unsolved, supernatural mysteries of our world. So, I have, like, a bunch of stories that I'm gonna, like, read to you guys, and then we're gonna, like, talk about them a little bit, and, yeah, that's the gameplay for today. Okay, so, the first story I have, just Right off the bat, the title sounds not pleasant, but, you know, I'm trying to be brave. Because if you know me personally, I'm, like, the biggest coward on the planet. Like, I've never seen, like, a legit, like, horror film. I've never been in a haunted house. Like, I barely survived a haunted hallway. So, first story is called The gruesome Story of the Unsolved Villisca Axe Murders. It's fun. We already got a nice title. Okay, so the story goes, At the end of a quiet street in Vilasca, iowa there's just an old white frame house up the street there are a group of churches and a few blocks away is a park that faces a middle school the old white house looks like many of the others that fill the neighborhood but unlike them it lies abandoned the house emits no light or sound and upon closer inspection the doors are found to be tightly boarded up a small sign out front leads murder house despite its ominous air the little white house was fil- was once filled with life life that was harshly stamped out one warm summer's night in 1912 when a mysterious stranger broke in and viciously bludgeoned its eight sleeping inhabitants to death the event would come to be known as the Velasca axe murders and would baffle law enforcement for over a century you guys can't see this but there's like a bunch of other pictures and stuff of scary things playing but oh my gosh That's awful. Okay, moving on. I'm getting chills already. (laughs) Okay, on June 10th, 1912, the Moore family was sleeping peacefully in their beds. Joe and Sarah Moore were asleep upstairs while their four children were resting in a room down the hall. In a guest room on the first floor were two girls, the the Stillinger sisters, who had come for a sleepover. Shortly after midnight, a stranger entered through the unlocked door, not an uncommon sight in what was considered a small, safe, friendly town, of course, That's always starts off that way. It's considered a small, safe, friendly town. Then we yeah, have bloody murderer come in. And, okay, so he plucked an oil lamp from a nearby table, rigging it to burn so low it supplied light for barely one person. On one hand, the stranger held the lamp, lighting the way through the house. In his other, he held an axe. Ignoring the sleeping girls downstairs, the stranger made his way up the stairs, guided by the lamp. In seemingly unerring knowledge of the home's layout, he crept past the room with the children and into Mr. and... M- mrs moore's bedroom then he made his way to the children's room and finally backed down to the bedroom downstairs then as quickly and silently as he had arrived the stranger left taking keys from the home and locking the door behind him the next mornings the neighbors became suspicious noticing that the usually rambunctious home was dead quiet they alerted joe's brother who arrived to take a look what he saw after letting himself in with his own key, was enough to make him sick. Everyone in the house was dead, all eight of them bludgeoned beyond recognition. Oh my god. Uh, the police determined that the war parents had been murdered first, paid with obvious force. I'm like, ma- mentally picturing this all is not pleasant at all, okay? Let's continue. The axe ha- that had been used to kill them had been swung so high above the murderer's head that it gouged the ceiling above the bed. Joe alone had been hit with the axe at least 30 times. Oh my lord. The faces of both parents as well as the children had been reduced to nothing but a bloody pulp. state of the bodies wasn't the most concerning part. However, once the police had searched the home, after murdering the Moors, the killer had apparently set up some kind of ritual. He had covered the Moors' parents' heads with sheets and the Moor children's face with cloth well, with clothing. He then went through each room in the house, covering all the mirrors and windows with cloths and towels. At some point, he took a two-pound piece of uncooked bacon from the fridge and placed it in the living room along with a keychain. A bowl of water was found in the home, spirals of blood swirling through it. Police believed that the murderer had washed his hands in it before leaving. By the time the police, the coroner, a minister, and several doctors had thoroughly perused the crime scene, word of the vicious crime had spread, and the crowd outside the home had grown. Officials cautioned the townspeople against going inside, but as soon as the premises was clear... At least a hundred townspeople gave in to their gross fascinations and they all, they walked through the blood splattered home. Yeah. Why would you do that? One of the townspeople even took a fragment of Joe's skull as a it keepsake. It. What is wrong with this town? <laughs> as for the perpetrator of the Villisca axe murders, the police had shockingly few leads. A few half-hearted efforts to search the town and the surrounding countryside remained, though most officials believed that with the roughly five-hour head start that the killer had had, he would be long gone. Bloodhounds were brought in, but with no success, as the crime scene had been fully demolished by the townspeople. A few suspects were named over time, though none of them panned out. The first was Frank Jones, a local businessman who had, who had been in a competition with Joe Moore. Moore had worked for Jones for seven years in a farm equipment sales business before leaving and starting his own rival business. There was also rumored that Joe was having an affair with Jones' daughter-in-law, though the, were unfounded. Though the reports were unfounded. The townspeople insists... However, that the Moores and the Jones harbored a deep hatred for each other, though no one admits it was bad enough to spark murder. The second suspect seemed far more likely to even confess to murders, though he later recanted claiming police uh, brutality. Uh, Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly was an English immigrant who had a history of sexual deviancy and mental problems. He even admitted to being being in town the night of the Vilska axe murders and admitted that he had left early in the morning, though... His small stature and meek personality led some to doubt his involvement. There were certain factors police believed made him the perfect candidate. Kelly was left handed, which police determined from blood spotters that the killer must be. He also had a history with the Moore family, as many had seen him watching. Then while at church and out out in town out and about town, a dry cleaner in a nearby town had received blood clothing from Kelly a few d- days after the murder. He reported also uh he reported also asked police for access to the home. After the crime while posing as a Scotland Yard officer. At one point, after a long interrogation, he eventually signed a confession detailing the crime. However, he almost immediately recanted and a jury refused to indict him. For years, police looked into every possible scenario that could have culminated in the Vizca axe murders. Was it a single attack or part of a larger string of murders? Was it, it likelier to be a local perpetrator or a traveling killer simply passing through town and taking an opportunity? Soon, reports of similar enough crimes happening throughout the country began to pop up, though the crimes were not quite as gruesome. There were two common threats. The use of an axe as a murder weapon and the presence of an oil lamp set to burn extremely low at the scene. Despite the Communalities, however, no actual connections could be made. These eventually ran cold, and the house was boarded up. No sale was ever attempted. No changes were made to the original layout. Now the house sits at the end of the quiet street, as it always has. While life goes on around it, undeterred by the horrors that were once committed within. Holy smokes, that's a that's oh that's so gruesome. Okay, so that's a um, disturbing of a story. So basically, what happened is that some crazy serial killer dude came in, axed the heck out of all these people's faces and, like, laid out some freaky ritual. But what I want to know is, what's with the bacon? That's a little random. Bacon, a keychain in the middle of a room with a bowl of water. Also, like, this one guy uh, who they accused seems to be very suspicious. So eight people were murdered, all brutally murdered with, like, this axe. They had a couple suspects, but, like, none of them actually... Went anywhere, and the case ran cold. Their first suspect was this one of um, Mr. Moore, I guess, uh, old like I guess colleagues, and they everyone thought it was like a rivalry between the two, and that's why he like murdered him in order to get rid of him. But like there was like uh they didn't hate each other enough to spark murder, and the other one was Lynn Kelly, who's an English immigrant and had like a history of like sexual deviancy and other like mental health issues and he had admitted to pretty much like doing it like he's very very suspicious of it and like everything kind of indicated towards him but except that his small stature and meek personality led to some doubt in his actual involvement though like he had like admitted to killing other people and also like stalking them like so this guy was kind of just, like, following them around town all the time. Just being super creepy lurking around. And then, like, pretended to be a officer or something like that in order to sneak in the house. What is... This dude's freaking creepy. I wonder if he went to jail. I don't know. It doesn't say anything about him actually going. But, ugh. Imagine that. You basically live in, like, a haunted town. Imagine if you've, like, lived in that town. And then, just, like, at the end of the street, it's, like, this murder house, pretty much. So, next story we got here is another creepy house story you'll notice i'm noticing like a common trend with like murder houses and all these like really like unsolved mysteries tend to always happen in a house so this is the the manson murder house it stood for more than five decades but is forever connected to the manson family's 1969 killing spree okay in 1994 the french normandy style house at 10050 Cielo Drive, a dead-end street about halfway up Benedict Canyon in Beverly Hills was demolished, but the memory of what happened there in the early... Bo, what are you doing? Just take a quick little break here as my dog drinks water. (laughs) Charles Manson's name has become synonymous with evil in the most horrifying representation of what he was capable of Happened inside the now ra- now raised home, that hosted a revolving door of movie stars, rock gods, and other bold notables, for five decades. Roscoe, um, but its greatest legacy lies in who died there, namely rising actress Sharon Tate, eight and a half months pregnant. Oh, oh gosh. Okay, that's not good. You, this is definitely now. This is going somewhere. When you have the rising actress and a pregnant woman. Celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring, coffee heiress Abigail Folger, aspiring screenwriter Walt—oh Wolf- God, I don't know how to pronounce his name—Wolciech, Frikowski, Free- Frikowski, Free- and recent high school graduate Stephen P- Parent. For those who have seen them, widely available photos of the crime's aftermath are impossible to forget. Overnight, the house itself became indistinguishable. For the horrors that took place inside it, its burgundy exterior serving as an eerie reminder of the bloodshed. What perhaps most shocking is how long it took to tear it down. Oh, that's mysterious. Uh, nearly 50 years uh, nifty fear, fifty years later, the cult fascination surrounding the crimes remained potent. No less an obsessive than Quentin Tarantino has attracted an impressive cast for his mansion-adjacent film Once Upon a Time to Hollywood. What? <gasps> No way. That's what that movie's based off of? Oh gosh, then I don't think I know where this is going. Oh jeez, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> okay, 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 so moving on. Ooh, this just got really interesting. I've seen the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so like, okay. The film in part tells a dark story of 10050 Cielo Drive through the characters of Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Next door neighbors to Tate, Margot Robbie, and her director husband, Roman uh roman uh polanski like so many murder houses before and since, it's 150 cielo drives association with terror and death bellies the fact that for every day of its existence but one nothing that happened there would have set it apart from any other house on any other street still it is fascinating to consider both the slow chain of transactions and life events that led up to its single led up to its single night in, of infamy as well as the psychic darkness that has plagued it in the decades following from its early origins as the home of glamorous European star to its modern-day incarnation as a mega-mansion owned by a man who unsheared in the era of TJIF, here is a history of 150 Cielo Drive. In 1940, Michelle Morgan was a young French movie actress who had appeared in such films as Heart of Paris, Port of Shadows, and Stormy Waters. Forced to flee during the German invasion, she emigrated to Hollywood that same year and signed a contract with RKO Pictures which hoped to mold her into the next blockbuster European import in the vein of Greta Garbo and Marlene Dietrich. Dietrich? Yeah, Dietrich. But her American films never made an impact, and within a few years, she was ready to return home. Still, Margaret remained in Los Angeles long enough to buy a house uh, situated at a 3.3-acre plateau above Benedict Canyon in Beverly Hills, the Robert Byrd-designed property, which included a 32,000-square-foot main residence and a 2,000-square-foot Guest cottage. Holy smokes! That's a bloody massive property. So the property was meant to evoke a French countryside home with its beam ceilings, rustic interior, and fairy tale windows. Completed by builder J. F. Watkins in 1941, the property, complete with backyard swimming pool, wishing well, and enchanted woodland garden, was idyllic and remote. Located at the end of a cul-de-sac, surrounded by trees, the rural oasis also featured stunning views of the L.A. Basin or basin, from downtown to the ocean, Morgan's purchase of the home for t- 32000 was reported in the Los Angeles Times. That's it. Well, I guess it was 1940. 32000 I guess, at the time was a lot. But now, that's like nothing. Huh? That house probably would, like, nowadays would be worth, like, millions of dollars. Morgan appears to have lived in her house until 1944 or early 1945, after which she returned to France. <laughs> It was subsequently sold to L.A. Society page regulars Dr. Hartley, Dewey, and his wife Louise, who rented out the house and guest cottage to high-profile tenants from the Baroness de Rothschilds to silent film superstar Lillian Gish. Decades later, Gish fondly recalled her time at the house in an interview with writer James Grissom, which he included in his book, Follies of Gold, Tennessee Williams, and The Woman of the Fog. I was perfectly happy there, she said. The air was clear and sweet, the view was gorgeous, and I rested and read and took care of myself. Oh, okay. Oh, here we go. From Love House to Death House, 1963 to 1969. Alright, sorry guys, I just had to temporarily relocate myself. Okay, so where was I? Alright, from Love House to Death House, 1963 to 1969. So, from the year 1946 to the early 1960s, the property's record is spotty to non-existent. It picks up again in 1963 when Rudolph Altabelli, a Hollywood business agent whose clients include Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda, purchased the home for $86,000 or about $700,000 in today's dollars. Um, Soon, Altabelli was renting out the home to high-profile prof- uh, high clients and celebrity friends, including newlyweds Cary Grant and Dylan Cannon, I think. Uh, who reportedly spent part of their honeymoon there in 1965 in the summer of 1966 he released it to music producer terry melcher the son of actress doris day whose time at the house would set the tragic events of august 9th 1969 into motion oh dear this story is like kind of like creeping me out a little bit if i'm honest but at the same time i'm very curious because like how they're wording this is like it's like hardcore like mystery i feel very sleuthy right now all right moving on Melcher entered the music industry in the early 1960s, first as a performer and later a producer, composer, and songwriter for acts including the Birds, the Ventures, Pat Boone, and Paul Revere, the Raiders. Oh, interesting. But it was his close association with the Beach Boys and particularly the group's drummer, Dennis Wilson, that instigated the nightmarish events to follow. Melcher, during one of the Manson trials, testified that was introduced to Manson at the Wilson sunset boulevard home in the summer of 1968 Hmm, okay famously wilson befriended the cult leader after picking up two of his followers uh during a drive through malibu later that day manson accompanied wilson to drop melcher off at his home on cielo drive melcher lived at the house for roughly two and a half years at least part of that time with then girlfriend and future murphy brown star candace bergen paul revere and the raiders lead singer mark Lindsay, who resided at the home for a time with the couple told the Houston press in a 2011. Oh that's like that was only a not that long ago that was like what eight years ago uh, interviewed that the house became a center of the Hollywood social scene in those years with a battery of bold-faced names passing over its threshold. Manson, he alleges, was one of those names. Oh, and he has a quote, and he says, and I quote, I walked into the kitchen to get a drink, and there was this guy squatting against the refrigerator on the floor, wearing this work shirt and jeans and looking really scruffy. So I said, excuse me, and tried to open the door, but he wouldn't move. He was just like a doorstop and stared straight ahead. After trying a few times, I walked into the other room and said, hey, who's the weird dude in the kitchen? And someone said, oh, that's just Charlie. He's okay, end quote. Bergen, who lived at the house with Melcher until January 1969, compared the hillside property to a Hollywood fairy tale in her 1984 memoir, Knockwood, uh, quoting, "'At Terry's house on Cielo Drive, I fell at home, surrounded by tall, thick pine trees and cherry blossoms, with rose-covered rail fences and a cool mountain pool growing over with flowers. It snuggled up against a hillside, a gingerbread hideout that hung high above the city.' There were stone fireplaces, beamed ceilings, paned windows, a hayloft, an attic, and a four poster beds. There was cartoon like perfection about it. You waited to find Bambi drinking from the pool, Thumper dozing in the flowers, to hear the dwarf's whistling hump at the end of the day. It was a fairy tale place. The house on the hill, never land far from the real world where nothing could go wrong. That dream was destined to end. End quote. Oh, this is. Oh, my goodness. Oh, there's a picture here. Okay. It is very, like farmhouse but like this kind of like it sounds like a wonderful place to go to like it sounds like a like a beautiful place like fairy tale like like kind of like snow white and like bambi like i would i'd like to go there but like i guess things went awfully wrong and you know minus the murdering part but like location wise it sounds like a lovely little nook (laughs) following melcher in bergen's abrupt move they relocated to a malibu beach house owned by his famous mother Alta Belly, the owner, rented the home to rising Hollywood director Polanski and his wife, Tate, who was already pregnant with, a cup, with the couple's first child. In a sad footnote, the 26-year-old actress was said to have doubled the soon-to-meet-famous getaway, The Love House. Uh, Melcher's association with Manson would prove fatal for Tate, severing uh, a par- parent, Folger, and in the early morning hours of August 9th, the grisly details of which have been described too often to rehash. Oh, no. What happened? Okay, let's see if it actually goes into... I don't think it goes into actually any... This article doesn't go into detail, but what happened, let's see, though. Let's keep reading, and if not, we're going to go back and try to see if we can find some stuff. Okay, having managed to track Meltra down, rock star Wannabe Manson convinced the producer to audition him on two separate occasions at the cult leader's spawn ranch headquarters. Melcher's ultimate refusal to assign him to a recording contract was a final straw, anchoring the unhinged cult leader to the point of murder. Contrary to popular belief, Melcher and Bergen were never the targets of the August 9th murder spree carried out by Manson's followers. Manson was reportedly aware that the two had relocated to Day's house in Malibu when he plotted the murders. Consequently, the the logic behind his orders to kill everyone, or lack thereof, at Cielo Drive has become a matter of much debate. Whatever the case, when Tate and Palancey's maid Win- Winifred-, Winifred Chapman ran down the long driveway screaming of murder and death and bodies and blood on the morning of August 9th 1969, at... 150 Chelo Drive's reputation was sealed. All right, found some I found some juicy information on what actually went down on August 9th. So, on August 9th, Manson ordered his followers, Charles Tex Watson, to go to 150 Chelo Drive with several other cult members and kill everyone there as uh in quotes as gruesome or as gruesomely as you can. End quotes. Manson was familiar with the house because of its previous tenant. Music producer Terry Melcher had uh, earlier considered and then decided against giving Manson a recording contract. Watson, uh, oh, so they had a relationship because he knew Terry Melcher. Interesting, okay. Uh, Watson drove to the estate with Susan Atkins, Patricia Cridwinkel, and Linda Casabian. When they arrived on the property after midnight, they encountered a car driven by Stephen Parent, an 18 year old who had been visiting the estate's caretaker at his home in the guest house. Watson shot Parent to death before he, Atkins, and and probably butchering these names, broke into the main house, leaving Kasabian, Kas- 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 Kasabian to stay at the gate as a lookout. The four people in the home, celebrity hairstylist Jay Se- Sebring, Sebring, a close friend of Tate's, was also there were made to gather into the living room, and Tate and Sebring were linked by ropes tied around their necks. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay, so Tate and Sambring were linked by ropes tied around their necks. Sambring was shot and stabbed to death. Farkowski and Fulgur managed to free themselves and flee the house, but both were chased down and killed by Crenwinkel and Watson. Finally, Atkins and or Watson fatally stabbed Tate as they left. Atkins used Tate's blood to write the word pig on the front door. Oh, my God. Oh, that's so awful. So they... Okay, so these guys cornered them into the living room, and then they were linked through ropes around their neck? That's like a worse hangman kind of, like, method. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. It's, okay, the following night... Oh, that is pretty bad. I don't know. Okay. My question is, that is awful and super creepy i'm getting chills uh but like is that more gruesome than the previous story with like the axe guy because that that's also very bad these are all awful but all right the story continues the following night manson took watson atkins krenwinkel and cass cassie i really don't know how to say these names as well as leslie van hooten and steven clem crogan in search of more people to murder? Oh my gosh, they continued. Manson selected the Los Angeles home of grocery store executive Leno LaBianca and his wife Rosemary. After Manson and Watson tied the couple up and robbed them, Manson left with At- Atkins, Cassi- Cassibian, and Grogan, or Grogan, Watson, Van Hooten, and Krenwinkle. Krenwinkle? I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to say his name. I don't know. It's. It's, yeah, okay. So, uh, remained in acting on orders from Manson stabbed a couple to death, again leaving words written in blood on the walls. Why? What's with the blood on the walls? The crimes created a panic in Los Angeles, especially given their horrific nature. Rakowski had been stabbed more than 50 times and shot twice. Investigators were initially baffled and failed to make the connection between the two murder scenes, with detectives convinced that a drug transaction was the likely trigger for the Tate murders. Ugh. That seems kind of like a weak, a week like, assumption. However, in October 1969, various members of the Manson cult were arrested at their base, Spahn Ranch, in Death Valley. How ironic <laughs> is that their base is in Death Valley, and they're going around on, like, killing sprees. Like, come on, guys. You could have thought of, like, a better place than in Death Valley. Like, really? Like, talk about red flag. Uh, okay, uh, accused of stealing vehicles and burning equipment. That's what They were arrested on the base because of that, not the murders? Okay, so oh, they did all these terrible murders and they were arrested for stealing vehicles and burning equipment? Huh. Okay. One of these arrested implicated Atkins in an earlier murder in Atkins while jailed boasted to of the Tate murders. What an idiot just, like, going around just being like, oh, yeah, um, a couple years back, I'm mur- you know, that Tate family? Yeah, I-, I was one of those guys who murdered them all. Like, who does that? You might as well just confess and be like, oh, yeah, I, I killed them. I was the murderer. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> okay. By year's end, all of the killers had been arrested. The trial, which combined the Tate and the LaBianca murders, began in June 1970 with Cass- Cassibian, who had been granted immunity as the main prosecution witness. Despite frequent disruptions, Manson, Atkins, Van Hooten, and... Krenwinkel were found guilty in January 1971. Watson was tried and convicted later that year. All received the death penalty, but the sentences were commuted to life in prison after California abolished capital punishment in 1972. Although they became eligible for parole, oh, sorry, Although they became eligible for parole, their requests were repeatedly denied. The story of the Tate and LaBianca murders was recounted in the book Helter Skelter, The True Story of the Manson Murders, 1974, co-written by Vincent Bugliosi, who served as a prosecutor at the trial. Wow. I believe the house still, like, the property's still there, and there is a house there, and people are living in it. And that, like, though 150 Cielo uh, Drive may be gone... Pieces of the house still remain scattered around the place. Some uh, pieces, like the door, reside in four uh, four thousand five hundred Magazine Street in New York orleans. While other places, pieces have been sold at auctions and other random little things. But like the victims of that murder house will forever be remembered for their connection to the tragedy that befell them. And by extension, to the house on Chilo Drive, and that is, in its own way, a tragedy. So that's um, that's a very dark story. I can kind of see now um, uh, how the connection to the Quentin Tarantino's movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but like that is that's so sad. Like that's a sad story. Like a very sad. It's very interesting though. I will say, like it's like a very interesting kind of like mystery. Less kind of, like, creepy like the other ones, uh, like the other story and the one I'm about to tell you guys about. But, like, it's still a really sad story, but, like, really, like, interesting. It kind of, it's just sad and interesting and horrific all at the same time. Okay, moving on from more realistic things we're gonna get into a little bit more paranormal stuff as our final story this um was actually a BuzzFeed Unsolved video that I kind of wanted to get into a little bit it's super creepy and I hated this episode but like it's just it it's a it's very fitting for Halloween but it is super creepy I mean if you're into super creepy paranormal things then by all means go look it up but like oh god okay here we go so, this story is the Island of the Dolls that's in Mexico. It has a very murky and terrifying history that we're going to briefly talk about. So, Don, uh, the story of La La Isla de las Mudecas, uh, the Island of the Dolls, pardon my terrible Spanish, is intimately entwined with the story of Don Julian Santana Barrera, a native of Chachamilco, I don't know. Milico, uh, borough of Mexico City. So he's part of, like, this, like, little, like, borough little area in Mexico City. Don Julia left his wife and family sometime in the mid... 20th century to sequester himself on an island on Tejillo Lake. Te Hilo Lake, I think is how you say that. Um, his reasons for doing so are hazy at best, but uh, but soon became very clear. Uh, Santana Barrera was not necessarily of sound mind. Not long after relocating, he made a chilling discovery on the shores of his island. Uh, the body of a young girl drowned in the lake. A doll came floating down the canal shortly afterwards, changing the course of Santana Barrera's life and the shape of the island for years to come. Alone on the island, Barra took the doll and hung it from a tree in order to appease the spirit of the deceased girl, but at least in the eyes of the man who now considered himself the island's caretaker, the one doll was not enough. For the next fifty years, Santana Barra would scrounge dolls from the trash and from the canals and hang them from the island's many trees. Some he'd hang whole, others in various states of disrepair, headless, torso, or taken apart in other ways. These don't sound like the actions of a person with a healthy grasp on reality, and indeed there are many doubts surrounding this legend. The biggest question, the reality of the little girl who died. Many people, including Don Julian's own family, didn't believe believe that he ever found the girl, although whether they believe he made it up, imagined the experience, or was somehow mistaken is unclear. What is clear is that whether the girl existed or not, Don Julian devoted the rest of his life to her. And perhaps creepiest of all, even the end of his life had a clear ties to the story of the drowned child. So, in 2001, though Don Julián Santana Barrera passed away, his body was discovered, and you guessed it, he drowned in a canal, uh in the exact place he always said he'd seen the little girl. In response, tourists began flocking to the island to pay tribute. Why would you go to this island? It sounds terrifying. There's dolls hanging everywhere. Why? Okay, you know what? People do strange things, so moving on. They brought dolls of their own. What? Okay. <laughs> Just adding to the creepy collection. Alrighty. Let's keep going. So Okay, so they brought dolls of their own, and to this day, people honor both Santana Barana and the girl, whether she was real or not, by hanging up dolls in tribute. You could do so, too. Many fairies stop here, making it a must-see on any tour of these ancient Aztec canals no absolutely not that is unacceptably creepy okay so that's uh concerning I know there's I I couldn't find anything uh when I was looking around but I didn't look around CBD but I know there are like some people who say when they go there they feel like they can hear the dolls like talking to them like whispering them as if like it's like the ghosts or the spirits of the children of those dolls or like the children who have passed on but like haven't left the world yet and like all this other like super creepy stuff that you know I really just don't want to explore so I thought like kind of like to cap that all, all off if you want you can go watch the BuzzFeed video I had to like watch it in bright broad daylight with many blankets and like someone with me because it's so creepy but like People, like, go there. There's, like, thousands of, like, hundreds and hundreds of these dolls hanging on trees. And they all are super sketchy looking. And, like, people bring their own dolls? Like, absolutely not. That is too... Too much, too much for me to handle. And on that note, it's also going to be the end of this podcast episode. Thank you, listeners, so much for listening. I hope you guys have enjoyed this. You learned some new creepy stories. Maybe you already knew these stories. Maybe you have got some new stories to add to your like archive of creepy stories to tell at like Halloween or like campfire nights and all that spooky stuff. If you guys are totally interested in learning more about these stories, by all means, Google them, search them up, research all to your heart's content. I am too scared to do so, so, you know, most respect to you. But I hope you all have a awesome Halloween. Get lots of chocolate and candy and keep the ghouls away with your jack-o'-lanterns and scary costumes. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram for lots of fun posts and great times at the Dot Diaries. And I shall see you guys all in the next podcast episode. Bye.